Welcome back to Drafting the Past, a podcast all about the art and craft of writing history. My name is Kate Carpenter, and this week I'm joined by author Lindsay Borgon. Thank you so much for having me. I am such a fan. I listen to it all the time when I'm doing my cooking. Lindsay is a journalist and oral historian. And her first book, Tree Thieves, Crime and Survival in North America's Woods, was published by Little Brown Spark in 2022. It examines the past and present of tree poaching. I was delighted to have the chance to ask Lindsay about her approach to oral histories in this book, bringing empathy to what is a pretty complex topic, and how her background as a journalist and training as an oral historian come together. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So I went to journalism school for my undergrad. I went to a school in Canada called the University of King's College, which is in Halifax on the East Coast. I'm actually from a very small town in the prairies in a province called Alberta. So I kind of I moved from ranching, farming area to to a maritime environment. <laughs> and I, I got my journalism degree there. I did a program that the university has called the foundation year, which is like a one year sort of great books, history, philosophy, social science kind of program, I guess, where you're anyway, where you're just kind of thrown in and, and doing tons of reading. And after I graduated from that, you know, I, I, I graduated in 2008. I think everyone thinks that their year is a hard year to graduate and it was a rough one. For sure. Um, and so I freelanced. That was that was the job I could get in the journalism industry. And I did that for about nine years. And during that time, you know, I I kind of started getting into writing about the environment. And then when I went to I, I got a residency, I went to the BAMP Center, which is a Canadian sort of arts incubator retreat type place where you might go sort of a McDowell colony or something and when I was there and I was writing about tree poaching there actually and um, I was talking about what I was interested in and somebody said to me sounds like you really like environmental history and no one had ever put it to me that way before and I was like oh yeah no that's exactly what I like you know like I liked writing stories about why things were the way they were in the environment and in our land management in particular, and why people felt the way they felt around environmental decisions and, and conservation decisions. And so once I had that in my mind, I, I was like, boom, off to the races. I always thought that I would, that I might go back to get a master's. And then when somebody suggested that to me, I was like, okay, I'm going to look up all the programs. I'm going to look up kind of the advisors and the people in the field, you know, do that whole, that whole thing. Some people do it right when they're done their undergrad, but I waited a lot of years. <laughs> I, you know, when I graduated uh, from my undergrad, I actually did a working holiday in Scotland. I knew that I loved it there. Um, and I, I also knew that they had really interesting environmental history, actually, and that their, uh, their history of land ownership and uh, land use was totally up my alley. And so I applied to the University of St. Andrews because they have a they have a degree in environmental history and that's what took me there. And when I was there, I had this amazing mentor advisor named Dr. John Clark. And he got to know me really well and he said, I think you should look into oral history. I think this is the thing for you. And again, I you know, I started reading kind of 
I don't know, like what he recommended in the syllabus and then going from there. And my mind just like exploded, uh, feeling really excited about being able to still interview people, but working with historical resources and and kind of writing perhaps not uh, news stories with those interviews, but applying them, I guess, to to kind of the past. So yeah, that that's my trajectory. I came back to Canada. Um, I started working as an oral historian on a on a land use study, and I had been working on my book proposal that whole time. And in 2019, my you know my agent and I sent it out, and and um, it kind of went to auction and and turned into a book deal, and so. Off I went running and uh, writing about tree poaching and the history of tree poaching and why people might do it now and how they see their region's past as sort of justifying it, I suppose, or not justifying it. Well, I want to get into a lot more of that. But first, I want to ask you all of my nosy questions about how you work as a writer. First, I'll just start by asking when and where you do your writing. I do it in this office that I'm sitting in right now. I it's interesting in a way, I guess. I uh, the best work I think I've ever done was was I mean, I, I I wrote this book which is wonderful and very you know was challenging, but uh, when I was working on my dissertation, I you know I was like fully in and I I felt at that time oh I'm doing the best work and I had access to a university library and I had access to that system and I just want to say I miss it like every day. It's so anyway, I I really miss that. I wrote the the book and all my writing now in my home office. Um and I you know, I live in a town called Clearwater in British Columbia. It's a small rural town about 4 hours east of Vancouver, so really in the middle of the province and I have less of a sort of distance between my work and my home because I work from home now. Uh, and in many ways, that is amazing. And in other ways, every day, I think, I just wish I could go to the library. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I rely a lot on interlibrary loans and, and stuff now. It's, so it's a different way of working. Do you have a specific time of day that you write? Do you write all day? No, I, I wish I could. I've noticed that recently my my desire to write my sort of muscle memory in a way to write comes in the later afternoon. Um, I don't know if that's something I've kind of trained myself to do, you know, getting up, having my coffee, doing my emails. I will be very upfront and say I'm a writer with a day job. I, so I work from home and I, you know, I work my my team, my coworkers are located in the east. So I actually work seven till two thirty-three. And that gives me, you know, three hours at the end of the day normally that I can sit down and and uh do the writing that I do at the end of the day. So that's when I do that's when I do that. Is your day job related to writing or is it something totally different? It's totally different. It's uh policy work uh in the government and I do a lot of writing, uh, but it's, uh, you know, papers, memorandum, that kind of thing. So it's it's not narrative. I really like it for that reason. I do a lot of reading in my day job, which is great. I love I love doing that. Um, and so but I don't I, you know, I don't interview people for it. I just am, am working within my team. When you're working on a piece, what's your research process look like? 
depends on if I had the idea or if it was assigned to me. I use Scrivener, uh, which, you know, I, I, I presume you might know what that is, but I find that very useful to put all my PDFs essentially in and so that I can kind of compare side to side. You know, my work these days tends to be a bit more focused on things that I know about, which is a bit different actually than when I was freelancing and I'd get assignments from all over and I'd have to like suddenly learn about personal finance or something that I didn't know about. And so these days, you know, I am generally following topics that I know about. So I will often go into my kind of personal archive on my computer and take out. I um something I do is I use this app on Chrome or like a an extension, I think, on Chrome called print friendly and I I'm obsessed with it. Uh you can turn any page into a PDF. You can remove ads and pictures and and just get the text. So often what I do is I'll just have a ton of PDFs that I've made of newspaper articles and other PDFs that I may have downloaded from JSTOR or, or you know, uh what whatever, what whichever way I can access things. Um and I'll upload it all into my Scrivener and kind of organize it in that way thematically and then I'll just make sure I have that open and, and open it up and start uh, sort of going from there. Um, often I usually start with any quotes I have and then I'll work around that and then at the same time I usually allocate, I try not to do too much every day, I'll usually allocate like 20 minutes a day to reaching out to people I might want to interview for clarity or for an oral history interview, or I don't know if I need a specific facts, for instance, like, you know, if I need data on a crime stat or, or something like that. Um, but normally that that's how I do it is I've got these big chunks of PDFs. I try not to work from my browser ever because once I have it open, I can't control myself. Like I, that feels kind of embarrassing to say, but like, I, that's why that PDF app, PDF friendly or print friendly is amazing. Cause I can export, you know, stories and, and whatever sources I'm using and, and put them right into the processor essentially. Yeah. And then I'll just start writing from there. I overwrite intensely and then edit down. That's my, my process. I think of, I think I always have told people that writing is more sculpture than painting. So I just make a big document that's repetitive and not good and take away, take away, take away over and over. And then try to remember to footnote because I don't, I, I'm not as good as this as I should be. Every article I'm like, this time I'm going to be perfect. I'm going to footnote everything. And then I'm not, and I'm like Googling around trying to find where I got some <laughs> stat from or some and like anecdote or historical thing that I'm adding. And I just, anyway, can take hours out of your life. <laughs> what does revision look like on the scale of a book project for you? It's, uh, so I was learning as I, as I went, I mean, this was my first book and, uh, I think I didn't realize actually how much control an author has in a book, which is kind of amazing in a lot of ways, but I went into it think thinking that I would be receiving more intense edits than I did. I've definitely been edited um, more intensely for a magazine article, but I don't always think they end up any better if that makes sense. But like, so I submitted, you know, a draft of a third of the book. It came back 
with lots of kind of structural notes. So I restructured, submitted again, restructure, you know, restructure over and over and over again, basically, and then relying on my agent to provide feedback in a way that the editors who are working on other books, it's not that they couldn't, but like, you know, they've got, they've got huge kind of calendars going on with releasing and editing and, and assigning and all of this at the same time. So it was very up in the air, not up in the air. It was very kind of self-driven. I used post-it notes on my wall, like color-coded post-it notes to kind of say, okay, this is present day. This is a, uh, you know, I thought of them in terms of sources. So like, this is history. This is present. This is a legal document because I was dealing with a lot of of legal stuff. And I almost had to switch my brain into a new mode when I was working with those sources because it's different. You've been granted them under different circumstances. You're you're looking at them in a different way than you might look at a newspaper article from 1945, for instance, or or what have you, right? So, or even a legal report from that time. So that's that's how that happened. And then I just moved those post-it notes around over and over and over again and tried to remind myself what I was writing because it's very easy to get bogged down and write many, many pages about the history of logging, for instance, that eventually got removed because I had to remember that this wasn't a book about the history of old growth logging, actually. It was a a book about poaching. So that's, I think I learned a lot. If I ever get to write another book, I have another, you know, I think I would approach some things in other ways, I think. But um, yeah, drafting. (laughs) And, you know, in listening, re-listening to interviews over and over again, when you work with oral history, I think that can help. I don't use any transcription service. A lot of people do, but I, uh, I think it's really important for me to hear back the interview and transcribe it myself so that I can, you know, when I'm doing the transcription, I'm often highlighting things, color coding them, setting things apart that I know I'm going to come back to and link through. So your original training is as a journalist and then as a historian, a trajectory I can totally relate to. <laughs> but I'm I'm curious, you know, so as both a journalist and a historian, a lot of your work and, and this book especially use both uh, history and journalism very much sort of uh, entangled, I guess I would say. How do you think about sort of historical subjects in that context? I wrote a fair bit about this guy named Enoch Powell French, who... has long passed away, but had had a series of oral history interviews done with him about being the first Redwood State Park Ranger way back in the 1930s or whatever. And a lot of his experiences looked, in my mind, similar to what perhaps a ranger today may have experienced. A lot of them were completely out to lunch very different you know because it was like literally the wild west or whatever but I knew that I wanted to bring him into I mean it sounds I hate using this word because I think it can it's a little bit too journalistic but I knew that he was a sort of character in a sense that I was going to be introducing in the earlier chapters to the readers before they met Brandon Pirro and Stephen Troy who are rangers today and I knew that some of the things that Enoch French had said in these interviews were like direct echoes of what poachers were telling me about today. 
and like set like, literally laid the foundation of the forest floor that they would then be riding walking on you know um and so i do think that there is a bit of danger in the sense of that is someone that i as an author made a decision to take out of history in a sense not not really because you know he wasn't brought into the contemporary chapters but you know i when you're when you're doing these things you're always you're constantly making decisions and you're like i'm going to i'm going to bring enoch into here and that elevates his importance and that doesn't mean that he wasn't always important but like you're making the active choice and so it is it is you could second guess yourself until the cows come home basically which i you know which i've done there there's a character from the 80s that i mentioned in the book character again anyway there's a fella in the 80s who i think could have been i could have placed way more emphasis on him the uh, the owner of the hedge fund that ended up completely honestly decimating the old growth and remaining old growth in the redwoods and it was also a choice to not focus so much on that kind of pre immediate pre-timber wars history you know i was i was focusing more on the earlier days so you were asking me how i bring the the subjects like kind of together i mean that's a tool that that that's a way that i do it i think my desire to do it comes from just kind of a deep human wish to understand why things are the way they are and sort of maybe my own personal experiences hearing people talk even growing up or or like spending time with people in different circumstances and knowing that a lot of times people's opinions are coming from like what their grandparents told them about something that happened in the 40s and that's why they are thinking one thing or another you know and i wanted to make that more clear in the writing that i did that policy and political sort of leaning and actions are often really really rooted in in parental and grandparent grandparental i guess uh experiences so i i, I don't know if that answers your question but that's i mean that's what gets me up and going i guess because i just don't you know i think you know, when I was in journalism school, there was, you know, and I was I was meeting people that would go on to become really great journalists. I'd never had that sort of breaking news desire. And I had a lot of curiosity around why things were the way they were and if they should be the way they are. But it was more of a sort of slower kind of understanding that I wanted. I just didn't really realize that, I, you know, I couldn't at the time I, I wasn't really able to kind of identify that. But over time, I really realized like, okay, this is, I don't feel that kind of rush of on the ground reporting, but I do feel a rush when I'm like interviewing someone and they tell me about their dad working somewhere and how they learned how to like use a chainsaw. So, yeah. I want to ask a little bit about sort of the approach to history on a more practical level too, especially in part one of this book, you summarize a lot of really complicated history in a wonderful way. But it was to the point that every once in a while, you know, when I'm reading it, I'm like, oh, that single sentence is like this whole other book. <laughs> and you reference many of those historians. How do you do that? I mean, how do you communicate it so smoothly when you must have done a ton of research? Yeah, thanks. No, I, you know, um, I, I wish I didn't in a sense, like when you're saying this could be another book, I'm like, yeah, it totally could be, you know, like, I hope I get to write it. <laughs> I think, um, 
if I can be very blunt, like I know that I write for a general audience. I know that that's where the industry is at the moment. And so if I thought I could sell like 80,000 words on one forest court in the UK, yeah, I I would do it. You know, but uh, I also knew that, you know, okay, I'm going to have to ingest a lot if I want to set this as important, which I believed that it was. If I want to say that, like, really, this all starts with like enclosure and like these big, huge topics, I'm going to have to, I'm just going to have to eat it, eat all of that and ingest it and try and make it clear. Uh, so I thank you. Thank you for, for thinking that that was successful because sometimes I don't know. But, um, you know, that's what journalism training will do. Um, you know, I felt that I wanted to cite as heavily, you know, I, it's not academic citations, but I wanted to include in the notes and in the bibliography as much as I could that other people had done like extensive work that I was relying on. But yeah, it's not, I mean, it's on a practical level, it's reading a ton, taking as many clear notes as you can putting it all into one word document and trying to link it, stitch it all together and then footnote like crazy so that you know where you got it from when it comes time to fact check and try to think of it in a, in a sort of from the reader's perspective, you know, and, and thinking in terms of how is this going to be clear and interesting to them as, as well as, to me. Aside from your agent, do you have early readers that you look to to get that kind of feedback? Yep, I do. I have a, you know, I have uh, friends. Actually, when we were talking before about the drafting and everything, definitely next time I would do that more. I think I was, I, I don't know if I was feeling shy or nervous or whatever, but I did not rely enough, I think, on on an external network. And next time I'd be sharing it all over. for sure just because I mean I have obviously trusted trusted friends that gave me great feedback and they also had different sort of inroads to the book which was helpful like some people that are nature writers and some people that write about science and you know a good friend of mine who's like really into history and and also is a historian so I had that but I think next time I would rely on it more for sure. Just because it, it's great to hear everyone's feedback. To take a closer look at how she researches and assembles such a complicated narrative, I asked Lindsay to talk me through an excerpt of her first book. Here's Lindsay Borgon reading from Tree Thieves. During the boom, the tiny town of Oric, California, welcomed loggers and their families to the surrounding hills, watching its population eventually swell to 2,000 and its number of sawmills to four. School classes expanded commensurately, and more teachers were hired. Some of the logging firms paid so much tax that the community could operate solely off their success. It was a community in flux. The highway was lined by neat rows of motels, which some remember being frequented by a continuous stream of logging rigs. All Oric needs is time, one resident told a reporter at the time. The riverbed was home to a makeshift encampment, where entire families lived in tents. Some of our people are living in hollow trees and under old boards now, but every town goes through that in its boom days. Come back in a couple of years. The influx brought a man named John Guffey to town. 
When Guffy started logging, taught alongside his brothers by his father, he was told that if he learned how to be a good logger, he'd never be out of a job. He had grown up in Western North Carolina with nine siblings, and logging was so much a part of his life that he figures he learned it by osmosis. That's where you get your ideals from, he explains. It's a life experience. This excerpt has sort of a range of information and types of research. You have everything from uh, historical sources to looks like maybe legal and property sources to descriptions to interviews. What kind of research goes on to just the small section? I think that the crux of that uh, of those those that paragraph or a couple of sentences first would have come from me doing an interview with a fellow named Jim Haygood in his old hardware store in Oreg. and we talked for many hours. But it, you know, he would have said to me at some point because um, I remember it. There used to be sawmills everywhere, and there were two thousand people here. And so then I'm, when I take notes, I'm kind of writing down those types of sort of civil statistics that I know I'm going to want to go look up. So I know that that's something I need to, to confirm. The, the way that I got to John Guffey uh, was backwards through his son. So again, by, inter- by chatting with um, Jim Haygood, I had been introduced in theory to a man named Chris Guffey, and Chris would become part of this kind of core group of poachers that were the central element of of the book. And I had done a lot of historical reading that, you know, had really suggested to me that poaching was often a kind of folk crime, that it was done often by men within families. And so I, I asked Chris when I finally got a hold of him, you know, what did your dad do? Oh, well, he was a logger. Well, I wasn't very surprised by that at all. And, you know, I asked, do you think he would talk to me? Yeah, of course. You know, here's his phone number. And so that's reporting, really. The types of interviews I was doing were, were oral history life interviews. So even though my motivation was to talk to the outlaws about poaching, that was often much later in the interview that we got to that point. We were We were often talking about yeah, life history, family, genealogical stuff. And so that's that's where the quotes uh, from John came from. I'm just going to look here. The teachers, well, well there's a, the quote, all Oric needs is time and the, the people living in hollow trees and encampments. That's from a newspaper story. I accessed that through the Humboldt Historical Society, which is a community archive that I just loved and they were just so welcoming to me. And also, I mean, it was and is a community archive. So when, you know, you go into the archive room and there are filing cabinets and it was organized alphabetically and they would say, we have files for Oric, you know, so you're going to go to O and file through and take out. And, you know, they, they keep every newspaper article that, that had Oric in it from <laughs> whatever year. Uh, so that's where that came from. And I was taking notes just in the archive there. I wasn't able to, uh, to digitize anything. Um, so I would show up for like three days in a row and open up my word processor. And like, I presume you and your audience will know what that's like, where you're just like, okay, every citation you data you need, you're taking down and making sure you know where it came from. So I knew that I wanted to paint a picture of this town 
at the time of boom. And so those were the sources that I was using. But when it come when it came to collecting, I was just taking everything I could. <laughs> Partly because I don't live in Humboldt and I knew that like, you know, I'm gonna want to go home and and write like crazy and I can't come back to the historical society very easily. This was before COVID. So even then I knew I wouldn't be there all the time, right? So then I'd put it into my scrivener as I do and just start pumping all that data essentially out all those sources into the into the body of the book and try to kind of mold them into a feeling and a and a kind of narrative around this place that I knew was important it often comes it all often comes from interviews and then I'm I don't want to say I'm trying to prove it but you know then I'm essentially trying to work in the sources that can back up that person's experience because I always want to work from, I mean, that's what motivates me is the different, uh, the, the sort of different perspective, uh, the voices that I'm hearing and the people I'm talking to and like the beauty that they're telling me about. And I want to write about that and make it good <laughs> and make it compelling and not just transcribing what they are telling me, which is also fine to do actually. But so that I'm starting with them and not with the, with the vital statistics or the, you know, the, the sort of municipal data itself. You touched on this briefly and it occurs to me that some of the people listening to this probably have some experience or knowledge of oral histories and some may have some experience of interviewing for reporting. How do you see the difference between those? It's a good question. And there are a few differences to how I approach it. So before I really started to learn about oral history, and I was doing just journalistic interviews all the time. I, you know, I'd call someone up and I'd say, I'm calling from this publication and I'm writing about this. Do you want to talk to me? And now I tend to go in with more, with the wording worked out quite a bit more. And I'll say, do you have time to talk to me? This is what I'm going to want to ask you about. Make sure that they're kind of fully briefed in a way that in journalism, you maybe wouldn't go through every I don't go through every question because that's kind of impossible but you really want to give a, a an umbrella under which you're working to them so you can say listen uh you know in the in this instance when I was going to interview John Guffey for instance you know I introduced myself to him I said your son Chris gave me your name and your phone number um I've been doing interviews in Oric I'm writing a book that's about the history and sort of contemporary cases of timber poaching, but I actually have been doing a lot of interviews around what it was like to live and work and grow up in Oric. And, you know, Chris thought that you'd be interested in talking. So you're giving a lot of sort of background before you ever press record. I mean, pressing record is often further down the line. So sharing ideas of questions, saying, you know, I'd like to hear about your life. Do you, you know, are you comfortable with sharing that? You know, it's a lot of reciprocal discussion in that way. So you're, you're crafting the conversation together in a sense before you sit down and do it. I was not recording for archival purposes. So I did not use specific legal like release forms. Uh, so um, the permission was kind of verbally provided, which is a little bit different. I mean, if I was going to accession those interviews, 
I'd have to go back and say, okay, here's where they're going to go. Who will, here's who will have access. Do you want to remove specific names in it? Do you, you know, all of that. And then once we finally got to the, got to the point, you know, of sitting down and, and getting ready to do this, I had my recorder in the middle of the table and, and we would, we would just talk as where the information kind of led us, I suppose. So it's less extract. It is extractive. Every interview is extractive, but I didn't have set goals, if that makes sense, to come out of the interview. Often the the outlaws, as they as they were known, the poachers, they knew that eventually. I mean, it was kind of hard there, but you know, I was never approaching them saying, "Tell me about the night that you committed this crime." We only got there if they got there themselves, which often happened. And then when you're in the interview you're, itself, you're letting the subject guide it, often taking breaks. If someone indicates that they feel uncomfortable, stopping the recorder and saying, is this actually something you want to talk about? Yes. Okay. Do you want a glass of water? You know, it's very human in that way. And then, yeah. So that, that to me, the interview process is different. I mean, I think to some folk in journalism in particular, they might disagree with that, with that characteristic, but you know, it feels different. It doesn't feel like gathering quotes that you know where you're going to slot them in. It it feels a little bit more fluid and less sort of puzzle fitting. You know, the main difference for me is the amount of time it takes, the, the fact that um, you're focusing often on life histories in a sense where you know, often if you're writing for a magazine, you just don't have time to talk to someone about their great grandparents migrating to a region <laughs> from somewhere else. But in my opinion, like these interviews, you know, obviously I love doing them. But uh, one of the benefits is that when you find yourself inching toward the kind of contemporary in the current day, because you understand a fair bit more of how somebody got to where they got, it's a more honest conversation everyone is presenting in the way that they want to present but at the same time you know there's you have a bit more context into why that might be and it's less combative I would say that um there are a few instances in the book where I make this clear that somebody told me something that I I knew was not the case and I I wouldn't be holding them to account on the spot like there, I, I used the writing to, to do that rather than the, the interview itself. So I'm curious, I, I love doing oral histories as well. Um, I sometimes struggle with having the, I guess, vibrancy of the person that I am talking to face to face and getting to ask questions of can have the, the possibility of sort of taking over from like archival materials, which are inherently a little more inert. Did you struggle with that at all as you were weaving all these things together? I, you know, I think um, an important kind of bit of context to add is that I was often interviewing people that felt angry during the, not, not through the whole interview, but often in interviews, we would get to a point where people were angry. They were worked up. They either needed a break or they were, they were not holding back. And so that was very jarring to go from, particularly when you're reading about Timber Wars history, which can be very I mean, it was an angry time, but it can also, there are a lot of sources that are just very stark, like numeric outlays of kind of how many hectares were here or there and when they were taken and how much board feet at a time and what they were worth. And 
I knew that I had to kind of put those two together, you know, at some point, I think I had to decide if it was a human story or sort of not a human story. Every story is human, but if it was kind of a, a story crafted by a human emotion, or if that was supplementing the recorded historical data. And I am an oral historian and I, I lean toward the human experience over the, uh, over sort of the recorded archive. There were times when I had to often, like often my process is that I would work with interviews only for a few days and then I would cut that off and then go into archival information that I had sourced and I wasn't mixing them on the days because I found it really hard. I could almost hear somebody sometimes in an interview in my head kind of responding to the data or the data responding to the person you know, like in conversation. And so I had to have a, I had to have a wall there and then I would be able to go back in and kind of move in a clarifying line here or there to, or to try to have a little bit of balance. So that was one tactic I took was to, to keep a, a a strong boundary between the two to provide them each with legitimacy, but like not at the same time. (laughs) So my day job and, and since 2017, my oral history work has been, in terms of my job, has been related to former Indian residential schools in Canada and Indigenous oral histories and land use and, and those types of interviews. And so my relationship with records and like the way that I approach them and trust them is, is, is undeniably influenced by that work. Um, and so I, know from that how records are malleable how things are left out and why and things not being recorded in the first place and and what that means kind of now 100 years later and so that had an impact on this book as well i don't want to say i don't respect it because it's really important and not you know those are often the facts that 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 are needed and um, that tell a story, but they're not the full, the full quote unquote truth, if there is such a thing. Right. So anyway, I get the impression I got it reading this book and I certainly get it in our conversation here that really trying to present every, every side of what is a very complicated history and contemporary issue as empathetically as possible is something that is really valuable to you and in your work. How do you make sure that that you've talked about it a little bit, I feel like just now, but, you know, how do you make sure that that balance stays? And is it ever a struggle to feel like, you know, journalists these days are often accused of sort of creating a false balance. So is that something you think about, too? Yeah, I thought about it all the time when I was writing this book. There were many times when I thought I should not be writing this book. Why am I platforming people with a criminal record or like why? Are people going to read this and think that I don't think the Redwoods need to be protected, which is completely not the case. You know, I had uh, people voice to me their concern that if I wrote about how trees were poached, that other people would read it and go out and poach trees themselves. So, I mean, this is this is something on my mind all the time. But I always came back to the fact that there that I was approaching I wasn't approaching it with a sort of prologuing 
perspective, but more that I wanted to kind of situate this debate and this occurrence and criminal act in a much kind of broader national and, you know, North America at least, but international concern, which is like polarization, the the roots of resentment and discontent between urban and rural, which I think are only getting, it feels impossible that it could get worse, but it continues <laughs> to get worse or more stark, you know? And I felt that poaching was a really interesting way to talk about these issues. Um, and poaching is environmental, but so are those urban and rural sort of rifts. And so I didn't, I, I still kind of shy away. I realize I probably said it like 20 times in this interview, but I, I try to shy away from saying that I wanted to be balanced. It was more that I just wanted to talk about all the different angles and how it all fed into this one story that had been served to me through the news and through commentary on Twitter and other social media as undeniably something horrible that only a monstrous human would do. <laughs> and I totally agreed when I first saw, like, I mean, frankly, it was like CBC put a story out and then you're seeing retweets in your feed with a comment that's being like, heartless people would steal a tree. What's wrong with you? You know, these are, you're so greedy that you would take an old growth for no money and, and cause harm. You know, that is, that is absolutely kind of true. <laughs> um, but then once I started digging into it and even just doing generic, not generic, but base level, my first interviews when people were saying, you know, pe there's poaching because we have a meth problem. So I was thinking, oh my God, you know, oh, didn't think of that. <laughs> like, just didn't think that that would be the case. So then I'm looking into why there's a math problem. And then all of a sudden, I think it'd be really hard not to feel any empathy once you start going beyond that kind of surface level understanding of an action. And that's what I wanted to show. I don't know. I still kind of, I don't struggle with it, but I still, I understand that point of view. I understand the, the sort of argument that some things don't deserve balance, I guess, or not balance. Some things don't have one side or another, but this has, has more sides in my opinion. No, there's absolutely. A, yeah, there's, there's you don't have to a, shy away from your answer. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know, you know, yeah. and, like, and um, yeah, I'm still, it's still ever, ever moving or ever kind of shifting the way I think about things. I think some people have, you know, I definitely have received emails from readers saying like, oh, you were duped by these guys who, you know, they're just bad people. I, I just don't believe that. You know, I wanted to write about from even, okay, if they are, how does that happen? <laughs> how do you grow up also in one of the most beautiful places in the whole world and become committed to destroying it? I think that's a big question. And I think that that applies to all sorts of resources. And that was something that that drew me to this as well as thinking about like we're continuing to struggle with shifting natural resource extraction and, and adopting greener technologies or whatever word phrase you want to use. I think there's a reason why. And I'd like to to talk to people about it, you know, and that and that reason is often history actually almost all the time history. <laughs> and I think it's actually one-sided to just say money and greed is the reason for 
that's why bad people do bad things. You know, I think it's really complicated most of the time. But yeah, there were anyway, there were times when I was writing this when I kept thinking, am I is this basically the equivalent of interviewing someone who doesn't believe in climate change and then putting them on the same level as as like kind of our most important scientists and saying consider it and I don't think it is, but of course I would say that. <laughs> I don't I don't know. I don't think it is. I don't think it is either, you know. I think and also one thing I wanted to say too about this sort of the idea of balance and I always think it's important to say that most of the people I interviewed for this book, they're not, they're not people with media experience. They weren't, it wasn't an instance of a manipulation in that, in that sense where, you know, I was, I was often, I was dealing with people that sometimes had never been interviewed or asked about their lives at all. And that's very different than I think, quote unquote, both sides in an issue where one side is like, just massively kind of more skilled at at kind of dealing with the media than another. Well, on a slightly lighter note, I want to, I want to turn at the end of this interview and talk a little bit about your own influences. So I'm curious to know if there are other writers or maybe other media that you read or listen to or watch that inspire your writing. Yeah, tons. I mean, where can I start? Obviously, E.P. Thompson, very big for me. I think probably a lot of people would say that, but but very important to my sort of approach. Uh, Svetlana Alexevich, very influential for me in terms of teaching me about long quotes, which I'd love to use more of next time, actually. So anyway, we're talking about drafting and all of this, and I just... If I ever get to write another book, I'd just love it to have these really long quotes in it. Anyway, that's very Svetlana to me. Um, I'm a big fan of writers like Wade Davis and David Gran. I really like John Jeremiah Sullivan. Um, and all of these writers are, I think, journalists, but in other ways they are invest they 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 really dig into their sources. And I, I think that's that's really exciting. And I really kind of look to them as sort of people that work in nonfiction that aren't like straight journalists. I also like, I watch a lot. I love TV writing. So, um, you know, I really love shows that have, again, interesting perspectives on things that you might only know from one angle. There's a show called uh, Reservation Dogs that I think is amazing. The the sort of dialogue is I think really like as an oral historian I'm like oh you can see that or you can or I can understand that somebody heard that and wrote it down you know and word for word I love that kind of thing where you're where the dialogue doesn't entirely care about the audience <laughs> you know um and we're just we're just listening in what else uh ducks Kate Beaton wrote this book called ducks I don't know if you've heard of it it's about uh, the oil sands in Alberta, which is where I grew up, and it's I'm very drawn to it. I mean, it's a graphic novel, and it's it's memoir, I suppose, in a sense. But it uh, it really asks similar questions, I think, to to what Tree Thieves was doing, uh, which is you know here's a industry that we know to be destructive and very powerful kind of corporate influence behind them, but also people work on the oil sands. People work in logging. 
They work there for all sorts of reasons. It's not just to earn a lot of money in a short period of time. And and how do we how do we kind of learn about that and approach it and think about how we can I don't even want to say change, but how we can communicate with folks so that when it comes time to to transition, which we should have done already, but that's beside the point. You know, how can we approach people like humans and not just like employment statistics on a on a piece of paper? I think that's mostly it. Yeah, these days I'm like right back into kind of Scottish land stuff lately. So, you know, there's a there's a fellow named Alistair McIntosh and he uh oh, his work is is amazing. It actually really kind of ties in theology and and sort of religious connections to the earth, uh, which I think is really interesting and probably a whole new realm of study <laughs> in theology there. But anyway, he's uh he's quite amazing. Well, before I let you go, can I ask you if you're working on anything now that you're up for for talking about? Yeah, I'm trying to I mean, I don't I don't really know how to be in the first year of having a book out and also working on other things. I've been finding that really hard. And and I have a day job. There are days when I'm sitting here going, how do people write another book? Like, I can't, I can't even imagine. But I'm in my my early days, you know, I'm hoping to uh, to write more about community land and community buyout, which is a very sort of contemporary issue around the world. And so I'm I'm kind of doing some reading on that right now. I've applied for some grants to be able to travel and do some interviews. I think that that can be a really hard, <laughs> hard thing to facilitate sometimes is being face to face. So uh, so that's where I'm at. I'm trying to to write more about land, yeah, land ownership and buying communities that buy back land from concentrated ownership, I think is really interesting or or take it back in some cases and sort of the motivations behind it and, and difficulties as well at the same time and what it looks like when land is perhaps owned in a cooperative cooperative way. We'll see. Well, Lindsay Morgan, thank you so much for joining me for this interview. It's been been fascinating and, and I really enjoyed reading Three Thieves. Thank you. Thanks again to Lindsay Borgon for joining me for this conversation on Drafting the Past. And thanks to you for listening. You can find links to the books and other resources we talked about at draftingthepast.com. While you're there, you can also learn more about supporting the show through Patreon, by buying show stickers and mugs and shopping for books, which I imagine is a shared interest among Drafting the Past listeners. Until next time, remember that friends don't let friends write boring history.